0: listening to the Thoroughly Good classical music podcast a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form if you haven't already please be sure to subscribe to the podcast it's available via Spotify and Audioboom that way you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me The inclusion of commercials in this episode, number 65, marks a first for the Thoroughly Good Classical Music podcast, even if it's not an indication of any kind of financial support. The one you've just heard for Martini, a musical throwback to the 70s and my childhood, is the first of a handful of discoveries I've made by accident as a result of speaking to TV, film and classical music composer Christopher Gunning. A new album of three of his symphonies, numbers two, ten, and 12, are released on the Signum label next week, recorded by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and conductor Kenneth Woods. There is, on a first listen to those symphonies, an immediacy about the language Gunning uses in his writing – Perhaps that's no surprise given his background in TV commercials, incidental music, you'll hear us discuss one of his most famous creations, Poirot, partway through this episode, uh, and his fa- various film scores including the BAFTA award-winning score for La Vie en Rose in 2008 and Fireflight in 1998 for which he secured an Ivan Novello Award for Best Film Score. His evocative musical descriptions feel solid, they're rooted in a popular musical language And for me, he seems to draw on an easily discernible palette to create soundscapes which efficiently trigger the imagination. There are times listening to this latest release when it feels as though Gunning is writing dramatic music free of the shackles of visuals. And for me, that's important for contemporary classical music. If it is to achieve broad appeal, it has to appeal to the broadest consensus. And that means using a recognisable language in a manageable time frame and for there to be a bit of drama about it too but then drama is what gunning is all about intrigue mysterious black magic if you will we all love a bit of black magic
1: Oh got out of bed. Yes, and but where uh, in the country have you come look? from today?
0: I can see this is going to be quite hard work. <laughs> you don't like interviews.
1: I've come from... Uh, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, I have come from uh, Croxley Hall Woods, which is near Rickmansworth, also near Watford. Uh-huh, OK. And... That's where I got out of bed this morning. Do
0: you draw inspiration from where you live and work?
1: Uh, no, because I saw millions of leaves cascading downwards, and I thought, "Oh shit, I've got to clear them up."
0: Where do you? So, where do you see yourself? Where do you position yourself in your imagination when you're writing?
1: Now, that's quite an interesting question. For you, it's really interesting. Now, where do I position myself? Um, Certainly, uh, when I'm engrossed in a composition, it is really quite likely that I will be somewhere and not sitting at the piano or the computer or somewhere daft uh, like that. But certainly, I'll be somewhere. And it could be anywhere from the seaside. Uh, which is a great love or it could be in the country or for that matter I suppose it could be in the middle of London although I don't recall it ever having been that
0: I ask because when I listen to your music there is uh, is drama and it strikes me that there is a love of drama and sort of trying to articulate it or trying to get the orchestra to articulate it Mm. that's really where that question comes from so I'm wondering whether if you position yourself in those locations, it's because you're drawing inspiration or whether it's just sort of like a safe place from where to compose?
1: Yeah. No, it's not safe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Let's get that right out of the way. It's not a safe place, except it can be. Uh, I think every section of a composition will have a safety area. Otherwise, there's no drama anymore. It just becomes meaningless.
0: What makes it not a safe place then? Because you were quite equivocal about that. What what makes it unsafe?
1: Uh, Well, the obvious answer to that is danger. Uh, And I I would absolutely go out of my way to provide danger. And you see, music that doesn't have drama in it Doesn't really do it for me. It doesn't really interest me that much. Um, So if you were to play me a lot of Mozart, in the end I'd go. Yes, I mean it's beautifully composed. What am I supposed to say? I mean it's Mozart (laughs) of all people, Um, and the same for that matter would probably apply to most Bach. Um, But. From the point of view of producing my own music, uh, safety isn't what interests me particularly. So, does that
0: mean but that the experience of writing it is is one of a lack of safety, or is it that you are trying to conjure up that that sense of danger in your writing? Do you see the, the distinction I make?
1: Yes, I do, and I think the the most honest answer to that is that. When I'm composing, it isn't long before something dangerous crops up. Um, Is that
0: to maintain your interest?
1: But at the same time, it's not dangerous in the sense that maybe you find Stockhausen or Boulez dangerous. It's not that kind of danger I'm after. Um, Much more drama, I suppose. Uh, And I think that it comes from having written umpteen film scores. Um, I mean, it's a bit silly to say, I've written loads of film scores, therefore my music is dramatic. Uh, It isn't quite that, but I might...
0: Those film scores were written to order, so presumably there's a requirement for them to be dramatic.
1: Well, indeed, yes. And uh, in turn... What attracts me to writing, uh, you know, in in the style, in the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, what, what, yeah, Mm -hmm. what attracts me to writing film scores? Well, that's the question that's worth answering. Okay. I think. I could mean, you,
0: could you get started on that one? <laughs> you may, you may not
1: think it is, well, but no, no, I do. Okay. <laughs> what attracts you to
0: writing film scores? Well,
1: it is this dramatic element that I'm keen on on doing. And okay, so not every production I work on has the maximum amount of drama, but I would prefer it to have. And I suppose once or twice I could have been guilty about over dramatizing. Was that to compensate things? for
0: a perceived lack of drama in what you were seeing? Yeah. <laughs> 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 what I expected you to be quite so. Okay, right. Well, let's not name it. No. Or maybe you'd like to.
1: <laughs> well, I think everybody who's written a film score of any sort, comes across a situation where the director or the producer, whoever it is, says, you know, we could do with this beefing up a bit, Chris. Can you do something with it? Oh, I can, I can sense the bitterness already You in know, Actually, there's only a guy on the screen and not doing anything terribly much, perhaps. Um... And then it becomes really difficult, because if you exaggerate it, it looks silly, or it sounds silly. Um, So maybe you have to protest to the director or the producer or whatever and say, I can't, I can't over-dramatise this. Oh, you can, oh, you can. How direct does that conversation have
0: to be? Because I I have interactions with people, I make videos and... Uh, for people who have commissioned me to make videos and often I find myself in exchanges with them when they say they want one thing and then I sort of think, I'm sorry, I don't think that's going to work. And I find that that exchange actually quite difficult because it feels like we're both pushing on the same door from the other side, you know, opposite each other. Yeah. I'm wondering how direct you've found you need to be in order to get it where you need it to be.
1: Well, of course, it it varies from... Person to person, um, so one director might expect you to overdramatize things, and another one may may not. Um, but certainly, what you say is true. And the ones that ask you to do something that isn't apparent on the screen are the difficult bods, right? You know, <laughs> because okay. actually you're attempting the impossible. Um, Does that then make it easier to say no? Well, there are going to be times you say no anyway. Um, but I think one, worth, one thing worth pointing out is that the director always has the final view of things. So if you don't over-dramatise it in this case... Then he's going to do it for you, and he'll do that by picking the most unsuitable bit of music from the score somewhere and shoving it on. Um, so that makes you somewhere else.
0: That makes you starve
1: I hate that. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> hate it.
0: What when they when they just rip something out of the score? Well, just of course
1: I it. do. Okay. You know, and uh, you know it might get as bad as going to watch the finished film, having not been invited to the dubbing session it happens um and finding that the music's all over the place and not where you intended at all and when you've gone to immense trouble to make the music fit and if somebody gets their <laughs> note cut you've done it in the music as well perhaps um it is you know it's jolly annoying <laughs>
0: Doesn't that, uh, that makes me think of uh, composers who are writing concert pieces and, and this idea of when they've written something new, they're having to relinquish it at the point of the final rehearsal and at the point of the premiere. The, the thing that they've been working on for a long time, they then have to hand over to the conductor and the orchestra to, to, to come real. It sounds as though film composers and TV composers possibly have uh, a more challenging relationship because there's a bit of a tussle in comparison.
1: Is that, would that be... Well, I think I, I might be over-exaggerating in a way. Um, now you're calling it a tussle. Well, I'm just I, I'm playing a hunch. I mean, I <laughs> it is sometimes, and it has been. I've experienced that, but I wouldn't like to say that i necessarily experienced it absolutely all the time and every time. I. Sit down to write a film score. I'm going. Oh my god! It's <laughs> <going to> be... <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wonder but, whether
0: I wonder whether actually you kind of quite like that exchange. Whether you quite like that. T- if you like drama, then therefore you want resolution. You probably quite like that kind of exchange.
1: No, I I don't think I do. You see, I don't think I would like argumentative drama at least carried to the possible extreme where somebody's actually going to get murdered. In this. <laughs> well, no, I think that um, would be a bad thing. <laughs> a bad but, thing for the workplace. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is perfectly true. I have felt like murdering one okay. or two directors okay. and producers. I really have. Okay, um, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> just <doesn't> to clarify. I <laughs> don't think I would. And <laughs> but um uh i've dried up. what am I talking about you're talking about
0: uh <laughs> the, the, the fact that that actually maybe you don't really seek out those kind of exchanges you're not, you're not sort of energized by that that tension
1: well i would I would start anyway would by um, by coming to an agreement somewhere along the line uh, and an understanding and i'd hope wherever possible to shoo the director or the producer, whoever it is, um, out of my house and say, look, can you just let me get on with it? (laughs) You know, because this is the sort of thing I'm thinking of doing, da-da-da-da-da-da, but I need to work on it some more. And... um, you're not someone who will,
0: who will work well with someone bringing down your neck or l- looking over your shoulder. You need to work in isolation first and then present the idea.
1: Yeah, and isolation afterwards. And afterwards. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> because if that makes me sort of horribly difficult, I don't know. But um, I
0: think that makes you distinctive.
1: I can't write music with somebody else in the room. I can't do it nothing happens you know do you know anybody who can uh no because i'm not really privy to how other people write their music i would imagine that john williams uh to f- to name a very famous example i would imagine that he does it on his own and then hands his short scores to an orchestrator to fill out and of course we all know it's really terrific stuff um but i doubt that he would be able to work in that sort of concentration with a director or a producer sitting here saying oh can we have an e there Yes, um (laughs) that
0: would be a bit insulting wouldn't it it would be a bit insulting do you work from short do you work to short scores do you hand over to an orchestrator or do you orchestrate as well
1: no, I orchestrate as well, and um, for some reason, rather, I've always, I've always done that, and I suppose it's because I can. But um, there have been circumstances where the deadline has been so totally impossible that the only alternative was for me to go without sleep for a couple of weeks or so you know, in order to get the score finished. And then I had uh, a very clever orchestrator called Jeffrey Alexander. And he... um, I handed over the short scores to him and... In the beginning, said, "Look, that's got to be the bassoons. That's got to be the trombones." La 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 la. And then, when I learnt how to trust him, I said, "Just do it, Jeff." Right.
0: So you were, <laughs> so a short score a short score would normally include uh, where melodic lines are, what instruments oh God, are melodic yes. lines are assigned to, and then. But what you're saying is that after a period of time, when you've developed a relationship, you he knows. Where things need to go.
1: More or less.
2: Bovril's natural ingredients add up to scarcely 20 calories to the average cup. If, like Lewis Collins, you like to look after yourself,
1: Bovril's a your natural choice the most memorable occasion I can possibly think of uh, was actually um, a recording session for a commercial. It was a 60-second commercial, so it's slightly longer than the normal one. And I had been briefed by the film director who said, Chris, I want you to be as way out as you like. You know, Second Viennese School... Schoenberg, just do it you know and I thought really, for Bovril (laughs) and so we arrived at the recording studio and I rehearsed it and it sounded absolutely as way out as I wanted (laughs) it to so you'd met the criteria I'd done done it (laughs) right but when I went upstairs for the playback, there were only two guys from the advertising agency there. And one of them was absolutely beside himself with rage. I honestly thought he was going to have a heart attack or something. He said, what is this? Is this a piss take? You, you can't be serious. What is it? And I said, well... um." <laughs> I'm sorry, um, but I think you'll find it's roughly what the director wanted. And thank God, at that moment, the director turned up and he said, How are you going? And I said, Well... um <laughs> I've known smoother Sessions. Um, He said, well, let's hear it. And so it was played to him. He said, Chris, it's fantastic. It's just what I wanted. Whereupon, of course, the argument transferred itself to the director and the guys from the agency. Did you have to hold your nerve, though? I
0: mean, it's a funny tale, yes. but, but you had to hold your nerve.
1: I had to hold my nerve, and once I'd got the director on my side, I felt, at least I'd done something right, even if not the whole job. And, um, as a matter of fact, about a week later, we were back in the studio, and I recorded... Very, very sweet, simple, bovril. Alternate track, Yeah. An, an alternative. Yeah. And that's the one that went <laughs> on <Saturday> air. <laughs>
0: um, I wonder, I don't know whether I, whether you're okay with me asking you this. I realise that we're meant to be here talking about the Shandos release. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the Signum release. Yes. We'll get it right. Um, <laughs> Which is the symphony. symphony uh, but I do also want to ask, because this is a, a personal podcast, I do also want to ask you about Poirot. Okay. realised that you'd written that until I searched your Spotify profile this morning uh, and I had a moment of oh! um, because the first time I heard that was on a CD compilation in the mid-90s Yes. I never watched the series I had no desire to watch the series that's a bizarre thing the reason I'm asking you about it is because there is something in the writing and in the style of writing for television which I think I hear in George Fenton's music and to a certain extent in Simon May's uh, which is so concise um, that it almost seems like wizardry and I'm wondering whether you can tell me what the what the guiding principles are for writing something like Poirot.
1: I need a, a couple of weeks to think... What, up, the answer is or suitable, the work? A yeah, <laughs> <is> suitable... <laughs> well, 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 we've only got ten minutes. What cheap? Well, <laughs> the process I went through with Poirot was slightly... Um, more unusual than some because the producer was Brian Eastman and might well to some people come under the heading of oh my god you know difficult Um, but funnily enough not for me because I understood what he was talking about and had sympathy with it. But what he wanted was something that reeked of the 30s somehow, but was not uh, pure and simple 30s. In other words, not purely and simply Debussy, Ravel, you know, or any Belgian composers around at that time, which I must say, (laughs) at the first meeting, I couldn't... (laughs) 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 Who were they? And... um, so what i uh what I did in order to make the process perhaps a bit more uh, a bit simpler, was to write five different tunes, because frankly, I hadn't got the foggiest as to what it should be like, um, because you could take so many different turns with it. Um, but number five was the one that you're used to listening to and Brian, when he came back to me with these five little piano demos he said, well, number five is my favourite, but that's partly because it's the only one of the five that I can remember and I said, well, that's probably as good a reason as any um, for choosing it and then the Uh, that followed a whole load of deliberations as to who the lead instrument should be. And I was pretty, from memory anyway, I was pretty certain it should be a saxophone. And I thought it should be either a soprano or an alto saxophone. Um, And Brian also thought there was a case for having a solo violin and a trumpet... Uh, and, you know, all sorts of other instruments. So we did a demo backing track uh, and put Stan Saltzman playing his saxophone on the top. And that, as far as I'm concerned, was it. I'd done the incidental (coughs) music. So when... Brian didn't ring for another three weeks. I thought, oh dear, <laughs> this is this has got those signs, hasn't it? Well, you've known these once before. And so in the end, uh, you know, I consulted my wife and she said, ring him up. Yes. Just ring him up. Yes. I said, I don't want to. I don't want to be told it's no good. But well, anyway because he'd gone away from the recording session so blissfully happy. Uh, Anyway, um, he answered the phone, as he always would, and said, well, I'm afraid, Chris, the truth is, we're getting negative results about your tune, and I'm afraid we'll have to start again. And I said, well, Brian, I can't start again unless you tell me where to start, because I just don't know. So can I see something? Can He said, yes, come along this afternoon. So I went along to the cutting room, and there was David Suchet as Poirot walking along, testing out his walk uh, with all the gear on and the umbrella and stuff. And I saw exactly what was wrong which was that the soprano saxophone, which is the one I'd chosen, it was far too comical. And it slowly dawned on me that this is not a comedy at all. It's quite funny, but it's not riotously funny. And what's more, every single episode is going to have a death in it you know and i thought okay i'm very sorry everybody i'd like to go away and just rethink it a bit and i went home and straight away i rethought it which was into the uh into g minor instead of d minor for the alto saxophone uh Moved the whole accompaniment down into the bass lower regions and whatnot. Added the piano at the front going bling, blum, bling, blum, bling, blum, bling, blum, bling, blum. That was it. And then we did another demo of it. And Brian said, Chris is fantastic. And it had all the mystery that was wanted. It was a bit spooky, but not terrifyingly so. And. It had a bit of uh, something a bit comedy about it.
0: I ask you about that because, actually, when I hear the symphonies, uh, or certainly when I heard the symphonies for the first time, I hear that same concision and I hear that same sense of drama, and I feel as though, like the opening of Poirot, I feel as though I am very swiftly positioned somewhere, I am in the heart of something. And I, that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because I saw similarities. uh, And I'm wondering whether you're aware of that, or whether that's just something that is familiar to you. I get the the thing about drama, I see, not only because you love drama, but because you tell a cracking tale, uh, but but there is this sense that musically you want to put people in the centre of the action. You're
1: nodding in a way that makes me think that maybe you hadn't realised that. I haven't totally realised it because nobody's told me sort of flat out that my Poirot is the same as my symphonies. Oh dear, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't say it was the same. No, you I, didn't. I heard the similarities. so no, you did absolutely clear. <laughs> but I suppose, really, when you think about it, it's fairly natural that if you if you happen to have hit on any hallmarks at all, they would spread over into into your other music. <laughs>
0: There's a sense that there aren't any... In the symphonies, there's a sense there aren't any flabby bits. Right. And I, and so that made me wonder whether uh, spending a long time writing... Essentially writing to order and writing to a time code means that when you come to write something that you want to write, then inevitably you're going to write, be writing very concisely and very efficiently.
1: But I think it might possibly be the other way round. Because I think what might have happened is that I did, you know, plenty of composing before I actually did any television or film music, um, and therefore I perhaps established my own um, my own way of doing things before I actually got as far as doing um, film and television music I don't know I'll have to think about that <laughs> okay, I'll come back to you <laughs> you not expecting might. that
0: <laughs> uh, tell me why you've grouped the symphonies together that you have it's 10, 2 and 12
1: well why? presumably because um, or partly because they were the ones left over uh, from previous recordings and then uh, for the most part they're newer Number two isn't, because number two started life in 2001 or 2003, one of the two. Let's not quibble over two years, it's fine. Okay, Okay. but what happened with it was that I knew there was something not quite right about this work and I had to... You know, I tried to persuade myself that it was done, finished, could record it. And every time the possibility came up, I said, no, just leave it a bit and see what happens. And actually, I left it for several years, and it wasn't until this year, the one just gone, 2012, that I actually... Uh, managed to finish it. It wasn't a dreadfully complicated thing to do, even though I had thought it would be, because trying to see the wood for the trees in something you've kind of already finished, it can be monumentally (laughs) hair-tearing. And so what I did... Uh, I wondered, is the whole thing no good? Have I got to just chuck it out? What do I do? Um, So I just left it and left it in the drawer, got it out. And I probably had it finished in about a week or two weeks or so, um, to the point that I was actually happy with it. It's not in quite the same idiom as for instance number 10 although you'll probably say it is well no I won't well I won't now because I, obviously I will make myself look like a fool if I did that no. <laughs> and uh, so that was why I chose number uh, number 2 to do and I'd, I'd always wanted to and I am pleased with it now I can view it As uh, an ancient master, (laughs) you know, sort of lecturing a little student.
0: talking about your work?
1: Well, occasionally, because I think what I'd rather is that people simply listen to it. Um, What's proving more and more difficult nowadays is getting people to attach the concentration to proper listening that I feel once they, they did. Um... So it's quite likely that whatever it is they've decided to put on, and may heaven be praised for that, um, they don't listen to it properly, and it's going on while they're doing the ironing and the washing, and, you know, doing everything else at the same time. And I just like them to sit in a lovely calm, uh, a lovely... Uh, comfy armchair, and concentrate. Listen.
0: There seems as though there's a shift in people's listening habits, and there certainly seems to be a shift uh, or a sense of accept broader acceptance around contemporary classical music or uh, uh, classical music contemporary classical music that's written in a tonal language. I'm wondering whether I'm making that up, or whether that's wishful thinking
1: on my part, or whether you notice it too. No, I do notice it. I especially notice it. And what's curious is that people are far more... uh, Or rather, some people are far more able uh, and adept at listening to atonal music, for instance. Um, And I feel it's a shame because they're missing so much of contemporary tonal music Mm. as well
0: and why why the shift though if if you notice that there is a shift a sort of a broader sense of acceptance what why why do you think that has happened
1: because they like to be up to date and up to date is always a sort of byword uh, for atonal music you know for Schoenberg's principles and the, the so but on. I'm
0: talking about sort of a broader acceptance for the for the tonal music that you're writing I, I, yes. I sense that say like 10 or 15 years ago there was sort of an implied snobbery for contemporary tonal oh, classical yeah. music I'm sensing that that snobbery is falling away and I'm wondering whether
1: you notice that too yes I do notice it uh, I think it's a little bit too early to make sense of it mm-hmm but I do notice with determination (laughs) that uh, more and more younger composers are writing tonally Um, and you know, you might be better positioned to tell me why this is happening I'm not sure, I will still go to concerts and I will listen to Moses and Aaron and all sorts of you know, i listen to the Berg Violin Concerto any time you send me there, and i love it. You need to be sent to listen to the Berg Violin Concerto.
0: Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, no, I'm not. I think it's a perfectly natural language.
0: I think it's to do with... But, um, I, I think it's to do with audiences' ease, or greater ease or appetite for the orchestral sound, and I think that that has been brought about by film. Yes. I think that there is a broad acceptance... Um, and, and as I say, appetite for the orchestral sound because of film, and so I wonder whether that snobbery around um, contemporary classical music is beginning to fall away. As a well, you
1: see that. Teller, just shut up. <laughs> 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 I think you have. <laughs> yes. So I don't need to do this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you carry on. <laughs> well, partly. Uh, that equation, if you like, makes me feel a little nervous uh, because whilst I'm happy for people to go and listen to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I'm <coughs> less happy for them to listen to John Barry, who I think is hopeless. OK, and right. then <laughs> It's always good to have a strong opinion. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, well... Film scores aren't going to provide what uh, serious classical music has always provided. The same ingredients aren't there, mm. um, and I'm talking about, you know, thematic development and and so on. Um,
0: film music is. A, I see film music as a as another character in the film, or or a component in, in the finished film product i I get the distinction you're making i I just wonder whether the familiarity it but film provides a familiarity for audiences so much and and is probably uh, probably reaches a lot more people than the concert experience does that's that's really where I think it
1: but well, it does continues. it does but so does strictly come dancing you know um I'm not saying there's anything wrong in that at all. I enjoy watching it, as a matter of fact, although not doing it really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Are you not not a dancer? No,
0: no. I think
1: absolutely, steadfastly not. Right. I did try dancing at the big ballroom in Blackpool, but with somebody or just on your own? Work. Well, I think I started with somebody and finished on my own. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that probably tells you something. OK, fine. OK, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe stick, stick to composing.
0: Um, but is is there anything else you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you?
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: See, you weren't me. expecting any of these questions at all, were you? I, no. I sense that you feel quite uncomfortable.
1: Well, I don't get to do it very often. Right. You know, it's as simple as that. Have you enjoyed but it? I'm happy. Yes, I am happy to enjoy it. Right. And of course, um, it's not to deprive you of anything at all. But, of course, some of the questions are redolent of questions I go around asking myself. Oh, Oh, well, this is very you uncomfortable. You think, <laughs> Why did you do
0: that,
2: Gunning? Why <laughs> did you...
0: You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good classical music podcast available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.